As we think about knowing whom we have believed, <clears throat> living in light of Christ, living in light of the Lord, in light of the Spirit, and work in us, <clears throat> we want to be humble and sensitive to the Lord. And for a number of weeks, we had been discussing a biblical order of priority, a focus in ministry, and part of what we had presented was God's glory being critical, creator God, Christ. And then <clears throat> one spot missing there should also be <clears throat> corporate worship and body life, and then men, husbands, fathers, women, wives, mothers, marriage, parents, and then children. In the light of the discussion in weeks to come, just briefly a blurb here and there, not a sermon or anything, we'll be sharing some concerning action that we will take, but the focus being primarily on the lower items, not on the area of children. We will continue Awana. Depends on response Wednesday night as to what direction teens will go. <clears throat> but making some shifts in that, but focusing more on body life, <clears throat> making sure we as leaders are where God wants us to be and so on. I'd like you to think and ponder. What experiences have you faced when you were terrified? What experiences have you faced in life when you were terrified? Follow-up question. What experiences have you faced in life that resulted in amazement. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 6. Reading together verses 45 through the end of the chapter. Mark 6 beginning with verse 45. And again, think about being terrified, but also think about amazement in your life and then as we read this portion of Scripture. Mark 6, verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida. Well, while he dismissed the crowd, after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they get out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. He was. And wherever he went, in the villages, towns of the countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him, to let them touch even the edge of his cloak. <clears throat> and all who touched him were healed. 
As you read this passage, you tend to think the events are dealing primarily with Jesus walking on the water and people's response to him when they landed at Gennesaret. Is the passage primarily about Jesus walking in water and healing? Or is it more about Jesus continuing to train and equip his disciples for ministry? And as we think about this passage, keep in mind that the 12 continue to be with Jesus. In chapter 3, verses 13 through 19, they were selected to be with him so that they could go and preach and cast out or drive out demons. They're being trained, but they also had been in one ministry journey and had come back and they were reporting. Also keep in mind that Mike, Mike, Mark, hi Mike, Mark continues to unveil Christ. The gospel writers unveil Christ through their gospels. By presenting his identity, Mark presents not only his identity, his character, his being. And I emphasize that because the 12 followed Jesus because of who he was and his identity, his character, his being, not because of merely what he did. Mark presents Christ as unique. He presents Christ as the Son of God. He presents Christ as the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He presents Christ as the one who is sensitive to God's Spirit. He presents Christ as the one who is able to resist Satan and has not only able to resist Satan, but obtain victory over him. This being or character of Jesus is expressed in his words and his actions, beginning with chapter 1 and verse 15 through the end of the book. He proclaimed the good news of God. He taught with authority. He quieted and cast out an evil spirit. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. He healed various diseases and drove out many demons. He prayed. He talked to his father. He preached in synagogues and drove out demons. He healed a man with leprosy. He owed a paralytic. He called Levi and a tax collector to follow him. He ate with the tax collectors and sinners. He taught concerning fasting. He taught concerning the Sabbath and said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. He called the 12 to be with him to preach and to drive out demons. He taught concerning blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. He redefined family, you know, those who would follow him and so on. He taught his disciples concerning the kingdom of God. He is Lord over nature. He could heal a demon-possessed man that no one could bind. He raised a girl from the dead and healed a sick woman. He acknowledges that even he must be acknowledged for his being, his character, and identity if he is to heal. 
He sends the 12 out to <clears throat> preach, heal, and cast out demons. And he fed 5,000 men. Many times in life, we rush from one thing to another. You watch the news. You go from one bit of news to another. You glance through the paper. There's all kinds of articles there. Let's stop for just a minute and think about Christ. Who he is and what he has done. But first of all, who he is in his character, his identity, his being, which resulted in, in him doing a host of things which, again, demonstrated who he was. The 12 were willing, 11, like Paul was added later, Judas Iscariot, you know, fell by the wayside, were willing to die death, not a natural death other than the Apostle John, because they knew Jesus in his identity, his character, and his being. They followed him for who he was, not for what he would do for them. And when you think about life, it's so critical as we walk with God, we walk with Christ, we're sensitive to the Spirit that we reflect on. Christ and who he is. Last week, Daryl Whitmer shared with us from a wheelchair, and if you picked up his booklet, Passing Showers, you'll find that he wanted to go on a trip west with his family. <clears throat> we know that he then gets sick and ended up in the hospital for eight months and is spending the rest of his life in a wheelchair. It was just a little time, I think it was two years later, it worked out they were going to go west again, go to the west coast and return. And they got to Michigan and Mary fell and broke her leg and they had to return. And it was during that time that he says, and he refers to Job, that Job knew God and walked with God because he was coming to know God. Not merely what God would do for Job, because God did not fix Job, but yet Job did not curse God and die. And Daryl Whitmer says, take the whole world, but give me Jesus. That sort of spirit might just ruin Satan's whole day. I mean, after you've dragged a man through every imaginable form of misery, loss, and pain, and that man lying in the mud, dirty, bruised, and bleeding, still manages to look up towards the heavens through swollen eyes with a pounding head and a hum, or and hum a little course of praise. What can you do in face of that sort of faith? If you're the devil, if you're in any way aligned with the devil, what can you do in the face of that sort of commitment? Not much, except to swallow what must be about the most bitter pill in all of in all for Satan and his hellish legions to swallow, namely, to concede that it must be possible, after all, that some men and women actually love God just because of who he is and not necessarily because of what he does for them. That 
There are, after all, some men and women who have actually chosen to be loyal to Jesus Christ as their Lord, regardless of the blessings or lack of blessings that happen to be theirs from him at any particular moment in time. End of quote. I think Mark is laying the groundwork for the 12 as they come to know Jesus Christ to walk with him even to untimely deaths because they were convinced of who he was in his identity and his character. As you begin to note this passage, you notice in verse 45 the word immediately. The disciples returned from their preaching and healing and casting out demons' ministry. They were reporting to Jesus. And in order to have some quiet, because people were coming around, they went across the lake. When they got across the lake, they were hoping to have some quiet. And what do they find? 5,000 men. We don't know if they're women and children, but we know 5,000 men were there. He taught them, and then towards evening, he fed the 5,000. In this passage, they're now out on the lake struggling. Please see the context. We have 12 weary men. Jesus has sent off or sent them off to cross the lake, and they toil all night trying to get across. While Jesus sends a crowd and then he goes to pray. And I think verses 45 and 46, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida. Well, he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up into a mountain to pray. If you look at John's gospel, we won't turn there, but you find in John's gospel that records the same <clears throat> set of circumstances, the feeding of the 5,000, that the people wanted to come and make Jesus king. He's fed the 5,000. There's a fever there. Let's make him king. What does Jesus do? Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. And the idea of their getting into the boat is he almost had to pressure them, command them, do it because they want to be part of Jesus being made king. So he gets them into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. So apparently the 12 get into the boat. They start their journey across <clears throat> the Sea of Galilee. Jesus dismissed the 5,000. If there were more than 5,000, whatever, he dismissed the crowd. And then what happens? He went up on a mountain to pray. Mark notes Jesus praying at only three points in his ministry. In chapter 1 and verse 35, Jesus prays, spends the night in prayer with his father. And the next morning, his disciples come to him and he says, look, we're going to go elsewhere. They've had successful ministry and they go to a different place. The passage we're considering now, chapter 6 and verse 45, they just fed to 5,000. 
And what does Jesus do? He goes and he prays to his Father. In chapter 14, 35 through 39, he's in the garden before the trial. And he, you know, Father, not my will, but thine be done. You know, after he said, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. Each prayer is at night and in a lonely place. Each prayer finds the disciples removed from him and failing to understand his mission. Successful ministry. And he says, let's go elsewhere. Feeding the 5,000. He spends time alone with his father. And he's alone in the garden in Mark chapter 14 as he prays to his father. In each prayer, Jesus faces a formative decision or a crisis. Who doesn't continue in a particular location if there is being success in ministry? Jesus says, we're going to go elsewhere. He's fed to 5,000. What does he do? He sends his disciples out on the boat, and he goes apart to pray. And he knows the cross is coming up in Mark 14. That's a crisis. And he talks to his father. A famous Old Testament scholar of past years, George Adam Smith, once climbed the wise shore in Switzerland with his guide on a stormy day. They made the ascent on the sheltered side, and when they reached the top, George, exhilarated by the thought of the view that was going to be before him, went up over the top. But forgetting the gale, he was almost blown over the edge by the wind. His guide said, on your knees. You're only safe here on your knees. In a sense, Jesus was only safe as he communicated with his Father in prayer. Very successful ministry feeds the 5,000. He goes and he prays. The timing of the events in verses 47 through 52 is interesting. Apparently sometime late in the day, according to what verse 35 would say, the disciples, I'm sorry, verse 45 rather, were made to get into the boat to head for Bethsaida. They toiled for a while because verse 47 says, when evening came. So apparently evening is coming, it's getting dark, Jesus sends the 12 away. He dismisses the crowd. Jesus goes to pray. And it was about the fourth watch of the night that he went out to them. Fourth watch of the night being somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. Supposed to get on the water at 6 or 7 p.m. They've been toiling for 7 to 10 hours. And Jesus apparently is praying. John would say they were about three and a half miles out. The wind was blowing them away from their northwest destination, though they had been struggling for 
some seven to 10 hours. The sails were down, the oars were out. They were literally driving at the oars. And despite their strenuous rowing, they were not getting closer, but further away. I don't know if this happened or not, but I can almost picture Peter in charge, standing up with his <clears throat> soggy beard, giving orders to others as to how they should be rowing. Isn't it ironic that the disciples ran into the struggle because they were obedient to Jesus? What a lesson for the church, maybe. Imagine what disobedience could have got the 12. Perhaps a full stomach, a warm bed in someone's home, an opportunity to discuss with their host the stories about Jesus. But what did they get? Seven to 10 hours out on the Sea of Galilee, rowing, but making no headway. It was their obedience that made them uncomfortable. It was obedience that accounted for Helen Rovar's amazing story of persecution during the 60s in Africa. It was obedience that landed Corey Teen Boom in Ravensbrook. It was obedience that put four young missionaries through the rigors of captivity in Sudan. In all these cases, their misery was their own fault. If you submit your life to Christ in obedience or in obedient commitment, you will expose your life to a variety of sorrows. Your caring, your commitment to biblical living will make you vulnerable to things which the uncommitted heart will never experience. What happens? The text of Scripture says, in verse 48, about the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. Somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., he goes out walking to them. They've been rowing for hours and hours and not getting any head or making any headway. The day before, the 5,000 had been fed. They listened to Jesus taught, and before that, they were going to get apart to be with Jesus, and they got to their destination, and here's this these 5,000 people. It's interesting. He was about to pass them by when they saw him walking on the lake. They thought he was a ghost. We're dealing with 12 seasoned men, some of them fishermen, in their comfort zone, where they fish, where they make their living. And what do they see? They assume it's a ghost. And they're terrified. They're on their turf, what they're familiar with, at least some of them, fishing on a lake in a boat. And they're terrified. The latter part of verse 48 says he was about to pass by them. It's kind of baffling. 
suggesting that Jesus intended to walk by the twelve. In the Old Testament, however, this nondescriptive phrase is charged with special force, signaling a rare self-revelation of God. At Mount Sinai, the transcendent Lord passed by Moses in Exodus 33 and 34 in order to reveal his name and compassion. Again at Mount Horeb, the Lord revealed his presence to Elijah and passing by, 1 Kings 19. And then in Job chapter 9, verses 8 and 11, where Job says, God alone stretches out the heavens and treads upon the waves of the sea. When he passes by, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. The quotation bears similarities with verse 48. Treads upon the waves of the sea. It seems like God is recounting, Christ is recounting the separation between humans and God and between humans and Christ. What humans cannot do, what Christ can do, but yet at the same time, revealing himself. They thought he was a ghost. They cry out, they're terrified. They're agitated, they're troubled, they're disquieted, they're anxiety. Maybe they had a panic attack, I don't know. But the idea is they're perplexed, they're crying aloud. What's going on? <coughs> it's an abnormal circumstance. And what does Jesus do? Immediately he spoke to them. Take courage. Be of good cheer. Be confident. Be hopeful. It is I. <coughs> the one who earlier who had calmed the storm is the one who now appears in the wind. The I am God. He is the one who fed the 5,000. He says, don't be afraid. The meaning of afraid is to be reluctant, to be apprehensive, to be fully or fearfully anxious, to be alarmed. They were not to be reluctant, apprehensive, fearful, and anxious, or alarmed. Why? Jesus is present. What is their response? Verse 51, they were completely amazed. Why? Completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. They're exceedingly beyond measure amazed. They're astonished. They're beside themselves. There's a displacement of the mind from its ordinary state. They're amazed. He walks in the water. He climbs in the boat. The wind dies down. They're amazed because they did not understand about the loss. 
They didn't put together. They didn't perceive clearly. Thus their hearts, their seat of impulse, their affections, their desires were hardened, calloused, unimpressed. Just not grasping things. What didn't the twelve understand about the loaves when Jesus fed to 5,000 men? It seems like the twelve did not fully put together the identity, the character, the being of Jesus Christ. And his power and ability that he has to feed to 5,000 men from five loaves and two fish. Apparently they failed to put together the action of Christ that sprang from his being. The seed of their feelings, their desires were not open to be impressed by what Christ did through feeding the 5,000. Were they focused on themselves and the fact that Jesus didn't act on their suggestion concerning the feeding of the 5,000? Their hearts were not able to be impressed. Why shouldn't they at this point in time be astonished with Jesus walking on the water and then having fed to 5,000. But their hearts were hardened. They didn't put it together. And again, as you study the flow of the passage, I think it's tied in because they didn't grasp his identity, his character, his being. It wasn't an issue of what he could do because he saw he had fed to 5,000. They saw him walk in the waters, but they were not putting that action with his character, his identity, his being. Their hearts were hardened. And the hardening tied in with who Christ was. They didn't see him for who he was. we wrap it up, I would encourage you to stop and ponder that Jesus in this passage continues to unveil himself, who he is, as he sends the twelve into a difficult situation so that he can come along and reveal himself more fully to them. And then as they land at Gennesaret and people are healed, to see more of who he is but come back to the identity, the character, the being of Jesus. He's identifying himself with God. And walking on the water, in saying, take courage, it is I. And as you think about life and what we face in life and how we live, at the very core is Christ. Being convinced of who he is in his character, his being, his identity. Harlem Popoff spent 12 years in severe and deep persecution at the hands of the communists years ago. And he writes at the end of his book, tortured for his faith, he said, I thank God for the trial that I have been through.
What did he cling to? Christ. Who he was in his being, his identity, his character. God did not deliver him in those 12 years, but he remained faithful. Do we know Christ and his identity, his character, his being? Let's pray together.